want to talk about some dynamics that are erupting in our culture that are stirring and troubling hearts across the spectrum, whether from a Christian background or a, or a politically conservative or a politically liberal background. I want to try to touch on some disturbing changes that are unfolding in our culture right now. And I want to approach those from a uniquely Christian perspective and intentionally avoiding either side. I might say things that the left agrees with and I might say things that the right agrees with, but that's not my intention. My intention is simply to come at it from a Christian perspective. I'll start with some troubling news. Just a few years ago, I think it was um, a minority of Americans believed that we would likely face a civil war style conflict in the next 20 some years. And after 2020, that bumped up to 65% of Americans in a recent, I believe it was a Gallup poll, said that they believed that we would face, uh, America would face some kind of civil war style conflict in the coming decades. The scary thing is that most modern wars have been fought over raw materials or land. Religious wars are different because they're not easily settled. <laughs> if you're fighting over things like raw material or uh, resources, property, those can be um, settled with compromise. They can be divided and, and uh, you take this portion, I'll take that portion. Even the, the war that we currently see between Russia and Ukraine is likely going to come to some kind of compromise like that. At least that's what people anticipate. The difference is, is a religious war is, is not of that nature. You cannot split the human soul when the conflict coheres around matters of justice of compassion, of moral right and wrong. And both left and right are in a religious level of fervor and commitment to their position. Um, if you look at, uh, I, I put this heading up here, Christianity is modernity's stepchild. <laughs> and I thought that might be provoking a little bit, thought provoking. But what I would say is that imperialism couldn't really gain global ascendancy except through hijacking the Christian ethos. And the Constantinian synthesis, which is something we could spend a whole seminar discussing, it really showed how the imperial might of Rome benefited from the unifying ethos and mission of Christianity. And that became the theme of imperial powers for the next 1,000-plus years. And now that, that that transcendence that was once borrowed from Christianity has been replaced by science and the power to make war, Christianity is discarded as the unnecessary tool that has now served its purpose. Biblical faith, in a sense, has been orphaned to the periphery and given place to new salvation models that have emerged. If you think about 
Christ's message and what he did while on the earth, you could distill his primary actions down to perhaps four interesting groups or categories. First and foremost, Jesus was a healer. He would have gained the attention of his population more through healing than anything else initially. He was a healer. He was an advocate. He spoke up for the downtrodden, the poor, uh, the racially discriminated against, as in the Samaritans. He was an advocate. He was a teacher. He was called teacher more than any other title. Good teacher, teacher, Rabboni, he, he taught a lot. And he was a comforter, a parakletos. He was, he was there to, he sympathizes with our weakness and understands everything that we go through as a high priest made like us in every way. But if you look at modern states, it's remarkable that they mirror these four things in their platforms almost verbatim. So the healer is now called health care. And the teacher is now called education. And the advocate is now called concern for the poor. And the comforter is now curing mental illness epidemics. So modern states, especially in Western culture, but modern states... I would argue, hijacked their compelling narrative from Christianity and now have, are able to discard that Christianity. In Paul's view, the state's rightful purpose was a limited function to punish the evildoer. And the free societies were supposed to be God's servant to foster life to bring love, and to, and to fulfill the positive functions of Christ's message. So in the New Testament Christian's view, the state had a role. It was a negative role. It was a negative function to punish those who crossed the lines of the law and became a threat to others. Conversely, the church or the voluntary free societies would have the positive role of doing good and showing love. These represent two kinds of authority. And it's dangerous when you confuse these two different kinds of authority. It is fair that mothers do not have the same limitations on their power that the federal government has on its. The Tenth Amendment of the Constitution says all powers not given to the federal government shall be reserved unto the people and the states thereof. We're very grateful for that limitation on the federal government. But moms don't have that. When they say, brush your teeth, the child doesn't say, show me where in the Constitution you have the power to force me to brush my teeth. And the reason moms and dads and free societies can have greater authority is because they're fundamentally voluntary. You might say a mother is not voluntary at the very beginning because there's not much option. My mom's here, but uh, there's not much option but obeying. But eventually it proves voluntary 
because you can walk away from that relationship. And the same is true of churches. True New Testament churches and churches in, in, in our time do not exert coercion. They cannot exert coercion over their parishioners. So they are voluntary societies. And thus, because it is fundamentally safer by nature of the fact that you can walk away, they can become more intensive in bringing help or change or correction to an individual's life. When the state begins to assume this same role, it's very dangerous because unlike the mother and unlike the pastor or the friend at church, they bear the sword. They, they bear arms to enforce their commands. Max Weber in his famous definition said that the state is defined as that entity that maintains a legitimate monopoly on the use of force. And so that's statism. And when statism begins to encroach into the spheres of loving and helping and changing and aiding, they start to confuse the population. Where does my allegiance lie? Who do I turn to? Jesus had an interesting quote here um, that isn't one we often spend a lot of time on, but I find it fascinating. I'm reading from a modern translation, but Jesus says, The kings of the Gentiles have absolute power and lord it over them. Those in authority over them are called benefactors. <laughs> so in this statement, Jesus is making a, a distinction between his kind of authority and the way they were looking at authority and the way the Gentiles were looking at authority. And he says, those exercising absolute power over others did not call themselves their tyrants. <laughs> they called themselves their benefactors. And this shows how the nanny state, how the the help you state is actually trying to wheedle in its place its, itself into a place of absolute power and authoritarianism through the confusion of these kinds of authority. So I'm going to jump right to a hot topic. And this is gun deaths and violence in America at this time. And you know, it's, it's happening in Texas. It's happened, two shootings have happened in the past week. This doesn't show shootings. This just shows deaths since 1999 to 2017. In case you didn't know, that, that graph does not correspond to a population bump. That graph far exceeds the population change of that time. But that's a pretty troubling statistic if you look at it. And everybody is scared because one side jumps to a certain solution and another side to another solution. But I don't feel like Christians really are offering a sufficient answer. And hopefully this conversation will help get us thinking in the right way and maybe even equipping us to answer our relatives, our friends, ourselves, what really is the problem and what is the solution. So when a... When an armed gunman mowed down 21 children and broke the heart of a nation just a few months ago, the left came out with a very consistent, well-formulated offer. 
Basically, they said, we must make it harder for killers to get weapons of war. That's a pretty punchy, obvious sort of claim. Would you agree? Now, I don't necessarily say I agree with their motivation or their conclusion. I don't happen to. But that's a powerful solution to the death of 21 children that had occurred that week. The right basically said this, our thoughts and prayers are with them. Mm. Uh, we need a little more than that. And, and, and different ones in the public sphere began to mock this, this statement here on the bottom. And I, I, I don't diminish the value of thoughts and prayers, but at some point faith has got to become action. It's got to become works, or it's a corpse faith, a dead faith. The Apostle Paul in uh, Thessalonians he said, the day will not come. He's speaking here of the end time, the final end event. And I'm just going to take a, a little aside here and say that when Jesus and the Apostle Paul spoke at length about the end of time, they both actually went out of their way to warn us that it would not come speedily, but that it would come slower than we expected. When Jesus is, is telling, he says, when they say to you, he is in the wilderness, don't go out, for the end is not yet. Then he goes on and he says, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, the end is not yet. Then he tells two parables. The first is the parable of the talents and and the second is the parable of the ten virgins. And in both of these parables, the, the, the message that you should take away is it's longer, the kingdom and the return of Christ is longer than expected in coming. Now that is not a popular eschatology, but the popular eschatology that Jesus is coming soon is very exciting. And there's a sense in which it's true, either individually or for certain peoples, and there's a sense in which it's even true, if you think of what the Lord a day is as a thousand years. <laughs> but Jesus and Paul spent considerable time trying to warn their hearers that it was going to come slower than expected. And I believe that a lot of necessary planning and generational thinking and strategy has been deferred by the church because they believed that it wasn't really going to matter if they had a generational plan because he was going to come before their kids were even grown. And they've been thinking with that faulty view for way too long now. I recently preached on that passage of the ten virgins and I pointed out that every place in the Old Testament where the continuous lamp is used it is metaphorically referring to a generational continuity. And the best examples is that that metaphor is used four times regarding King David. And it says, David's lamp will never go out. He will never lack a man to stand before the Lord. And it gives basically four different ways of saying that same thing. So the metaphor of a lamp may very well not refer to a single person person or group of people at a single time, but it may refer to Christian groups 
who are capable of anticipating that the bridegroom takes longer than we thought, and they have a plan to keep the oil in the lamp. They have generational planning. Seems like today, if you could have, if you could create a time capsule and go back and talk to the church of the 19th century and tell them what was coming, what changes would they make? You see, they may have just been off God's will by a one degree, but you carry that forth 200 years and it looks like this. They're losing their children. They're losing their numbers. They're losing their purpose. They're losing the cultural fight. Really, they've already lost it. So Jesus and Paul said the day wouldn't come as fast as we thought. And that's Paul's whole purpose here. He starts by saying, don't be shaken by letters and notices as if they came from us, that the end has already come. They're frustrated at this notion that people are trying to say it's going to happen any minute. And he goes on and he says, for that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. And I believe that the temple that he refers to here is the church. It's not a physical stone temple. And Brother Howard can tell us the two different words that are used in the, in the scripture referring to temple. One is exclusively the stone house that was in Jerusalem. And the other is can refer to the stone building, but it more often is used to refer to the corporate relational temple of the church. And that's the word Paul's using here when he says he will set himself in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way, then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And so Paul in a time of, of great evil, in a time of Nero and gladiator fights and bloodbath all over, he says the lawlessness is already at work, but it's covert. And this would indicate that the lawlessness he's referring to, as opposed to the overt lawlessness of the state, must have been some, the same reefs and blemishes of apostasy in the church. It was somehow a perversion of, of, the, of the ethos of Christianity that was already creeping into the church. And it was going to move along secretly until it was released. I want to just give you a couple key thoughts. And here's one of them. Here's, here's something. If you don't remember anything, this is one of three things I'm going to leave with you. Tyranny correlates to release. That's a paradox. But Paul says that the Antichrist in Thessalonians, he won't come into his place of power, of totalitarian power, until there is a certain release. Now that's a paradox to think that some kind of freedom is going to allow another kind of tyranny. But please ponder that. 
The, the man of lawlessness can't be revealed until a hindrance is taken out of the way. And the man of lawlessness will be the ultimate world-class tyrant. But he's ushered in on wings of freedom, just the wrong kind of freedom. So tyranny correlates to release in a certain sense. Talks about the energizing of Satan, the mob fervor that wreaks revolution's havoc on order and peace can only occur once there's that release. I want to ask you, do you feel that it's, is it responsible to say that we see a level of lawlessness being released in our time that we have not seen in prior generations, at least in America? Yes. These are from the last couple years, um, and it just brings home this level of release that we have been experiencing. This has not, this, this is happening because something that used to hinder this kind of behavior has been taken out of the way. And so something is being released in its place. Let me give you some more troubling statistics. 40,620 people die by guns on average every year, a rate of 12.2 deaths per 100,000. 59% of gun deaths in the U.S. are by firearm suicide, an average of 23,891 per year. 38% of gun deaths in the U.S. are by firearm homicide, an average of 15,343 deaths per year. To date, there have been 12 mass shootings in the United States in 2022, resulting in 74 deaths. We're defining mass shooting as anything that uh, involved three or more killed in a single event. By comparison, the U.S. experienced two mass shootings in 1992. But they were not shootings in schools. That didn't happen until Columbine High School. 29 children have been killed in school shootings alone in 2022. What is the source of the problem? I will not dispute with anybody that a gun is the most effective way for a murderer to take out the most number of people. Okay, so I, I am not going to argue that by removing guns, you're going to somehow at least temporarily change these statistics. But it's really a red herring because you cannot blame a sudden change on a 200-year constant, 250-year constant. The percentage of Americans who own guns is less today than it was 100 years ago. The number of guns is greater, but the percentage is less. Do you follow? So the Second Amendment has remained constant for 250 years. And yet, suddenly, we have this change. You cannot blame a sudden change on a 200-year-plus constant. You have to find some other variable that has allowed for this pivot that is so disturbing. And here are some indicators. Youth from fatherless homes are 279% more likely to carry guns and deal drugs than peers living with both parents. 279% more likely. 
So if you really wanted to find the tool that would have a success rate with a number like 279%, you would get churches to change the way they look at families. 71% of teachers and 90% of law enforcement officers state that the lack of parental supervision at home is a major factor that contributes to violence in schools. <clears throat> in a study of 56 school shootings, only 10 of the shooters, 18%, were raised in a stable home with both biological parents. 18%. So we could, take, we could reduce something by 82%. 82% grew up in either an unstable family environment or grew up without both biological parents. So I don't know if taking guns off the streets will have an 82% reversal of these trends. But I do know that changing families and fathers would have that effect. The problem is, is this is a spiritual problem. This is a church problem. This is not a state or political problem. You're not going to hear senators talk much about this because they can't do anything about it. Barack Obama came out and spoke about some of these statistics. But what could he do about it in 2008? Donald Trump spoke about some of these statistics. But what can he do about it? Oh, they can stop incentivizing the breakdown of the family. Wow. That's a big step in the right direction. They can stop being the active aggressor, but they're not going to heal the family. The left says, get rid of the guns. And the right says, let's impose red, red flag laws. You know what scares me more between those two options? The red flag laws. Do I want my neighbors and my government guessing on my potential mental illness? In Soviet Russia and in modern-day China, Christians who believed in the resurrection were classified as mentally ill because that's scientifically implausible. So this is foolishness, and all it is is more big government. <laughs> Only 3% of mass shooters had mental illness in their background before committing the act. But here are some examples of what happens when you do get rid of guns in the cultures where it's no longer guns that are the weapons, that something else has taken its place. Breaking news out of London, a deadly terror attack overnight. You're looking live here at the aftermath, a heavy police presence on the London Bridge where the attack began. A van plowing into a crowd of people out simply enjoying a Saturday night. Are we going to ban vans as well? The battered windshield showed the damage done when the 18-wheeler became a weapon. Witnesses said the truck jumped the curb, barreled into the crowd, and just kept going. Released of a horrifying rampage at a Chinese elementary school, a man wielding a knife wounded at least 23 students in Henan province. It happened on December the 14th, the same day, an American gunman massacred 26 people in the United States. 27, kill, 27 children knifed in China on the same day as 26 were killed in Sandy Hook Elementary. You almost would think there's a demon behind it. 
panic and confusion at the scene of a deadly attack. At this school in Sweden, a young man wielding what appeared to be a sword burst in Wednesday morning, killing two and injuring two others. One of those brutally murdered, the teacher, the other a pupil. These men and women now in a state of shock as details start to emerge of this murderous rampage. Horror tonight in the French resort town of Nice. It was sheer terror. A truck turned lethal weapon, plowing through a crowded promenade, killing at least 80 people, including children and wounding more than 65, according to French authorities. 80 people. President Biden said, I just got off a trip from Asia, and what struck me on the 17-hour flight, what struck me was that these kinds of mass shootings rarely happen anywhere else in the world. Why? They have mental health problems. Why? Fair question. Chuck Schumer, America's gun epidemic is unmatched by any of our peer nations in the world. Chris Murphy, this only happens in, the country, in this country and nowhere else. Nowhere else do little kids go to school thinking that they might be shot that day. Hillary Clinton, people suffer from mental illness in every other country on earth. People play video games in virtually every other country on earth. The difference is the guns. How do we answer that? What is the answer to that? Well, I would acknowledge that in part it's true. But the difference is the control. The difference is the control, and that raises the question of whether, statistically, the government is more dangerous than the gunman. Societies seeking and prom promoting liberty have historically tried to balance between security and liberty, and it does seem prudent to strike such a balance. America has, in fact, achieved the same and better statistics as Europe, but it's just in restricted locations called penitentiaries or prisons. This is the most gun-free zone in America. And it doesn't matter how many video games they play or how violent their tendencies are. If you restrict people enough, you will preclude certain violence. But what have you done? You had better trust the wardens you had better trust the wardens because who's going to take care of them when things go south? I've spent a lot of time in, in um, prisons ministering. <laughs> My mom was getting nervous again. And they control all contraband. They enforce uniformity. They shrink your life down to a cubicle with set hours and banging doors and deadbolts. But you know what else they do? They flood the place with entertainment. Because when you take away people's freedoms and you shrink their life down to more and more of a meaningless pin dot, you better distract them with a lot of diversion and make-belief because they don't want to remember the meaninglessness of their own existence. This is totalitarianism, and it's appropriate for people who have proven themselves incapable of staying within the lines of peaceful society. But that is not the direction that free nations should be heading. 
How far is America willing to go in pursuit of security? You know, these politicians proudly said that Europe and Asia don't have this problem that America has, is having. Well, I'll tell you some problems that Europe and Asia have had that America has never had. Our system of government has never allowed for kamikazes, for the rape of Nanking by the Japanese, or the Bataan Death March. America has never seen France's guillotine revolution or England's Boer concentration camps in South Africa. America has never seen Nazi gas chambers or Stalin's gulag or the Khmer Rouge or Mao's bloody revolution. The most advanced nations in Europe and Asia perpetrated the greatest bloodshed and, and genocide the world had ever known just in the last century. So before we boast too loudly about the gun problem that they don't have, let's talk about the, the, the government problem that they have historically had. Alexander Hamilton once said, that nation which, which can prefer disgrace to danger is prepared for a master and deserves one. I want to introduce a word that I believe was coined by this political scientist, Rudolf Rummel, it's democide. And he defines democide as the intentional killing of an unarmed or disarmed person by government agents acting in their authoritative capacity and pursue it to government policy or high command. So which is more dangerous, a madman with an AR or democide historically? In the 20th century alone, 262 million people were killed by their own governments outside of war. Outside of war. He changed the famous phrase to read, power kills and absolute power kills absolutely. Concentrated political power is the most dangerous thing on earth, he proved. So go ahead and put your heart disease and diabetes and cancer, put it over here on the other side, and it won't, all of them combined will not hold a fraction against the threat of organized government. So do we have such public amnesia that we have forgotten that there is a force historically more lethal than a madman? America's uniqueness was that it saw the government as the threat and endeavored to restrain it. The founders saw restraining the government they would operate, that was their primary mission, to put fetters and restraints on the government. Why? They did not believe in modern libertinism or modern freedom. They did not subscribe to the notion that man is intrinsically good and all he needs is freedom to prove it. They subscribed to the notion that man had a limitless potential to discover his God-given destiny, but that he also had 
those demons of his nature, that baser reality and evil inside of him that must be constrained. And they proposed that in a partnership between government and free society, government would be the weaker partner and free societies would put restraint on people so that they would be eligible for the powerful liberties experimented in the American system of government. William Penn famously said, men must be governed by God or they will be ruled by tyrants. George Washington said, of all the dispositions and habits that lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable. Political prosperity, he saw religion and morality as indispensable. You can't lose them without losing your political prosperity. John Adams said when he addressed the Massachusetts militia, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Now he, the ink was still drying on the Constitution he had helped to create. And he said it's wholly inadequate to the government of any other but a moral and religious people. In the 1830s, about 40 some years after the Bill of Rights was ratified, Alexis de Tocqueville, who was a French diplomat and statesperson, was commissioned to do a survey on behalf of the French government on prisons and penitentiaries in America. And as a European, he was astonished by what he found. He wrote, and I quote, nothing is more striking to a European traveler in the United States than the absence of what we term the government or the administration. Written laws exist in America, and one sees that they are daily executed. But although everything is in motion, the hand which gives the impulse to the social machine can nowhere be discovered. He's saying it's not like in Europe. We don't see the same presence of the government. There's some kind of impulse at work inside of people that's prompting them to do the right thing. This is startling to him. And he, he goes on, and I quote from the same book again. He said, Liberty cannot be established without morality, nor morality without faith. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there in her democratic congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good, and if, she, if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. This diplomat was saying he saw something. Something was at work. Never in the history of the world had this experiment been put forth where the powers of coercion would be overtly limited and give place and freedom for free societies, for churches, for Christianity to flourish and show itself strong. 
And the only reason tyranny can now usurp the place once given to the church is because the church has abdicated her mission in the name of freedom. If there were architects of tyranny and they knew that the Constitution would prove wholly inadequate except to the government of a religious and moral population, then in their strategies they would not attack the Constitution. They would attack the very thing that made it possible. They would attack spirituality. They would attack morality. They would attack family. And they would do it all in the name of freedom. And the church would gulp it down and preach it from their pulpits. The new mission of freedom in Christ. They would minimize religion and destroy community morals and ethics. They would remove the invisible restraining hand of God and conscience. The only hindrance to anarchy would be the unfettered state. Once the bonds of, eternal, of internal restraints have been loosed, does it not become irresponsible to give the same freedoms afforded before? I wish I could spend a whole seminar on this topic here. But we need to take a close look at the differences, at the changes in the 19th century church to the 21st century church and stop assuming that it's progress. Well, it's progress toward the abyss. The church is responsible. The church is responsible. She changed her theology. She watered down grace. She threw away discipline. She walked in lockstep with the world. And she did it all in the name of Christ. The church is responsible. And if the church will not restrain internally, well, then something is released that only a greater tyrant can put back into the cage. The difference between that church and this is fatherhood has been replaced with the subversion of family order. Modesty has been exchanged with exploitation of human sexuality. Community recreation has been replaced with individual entertainment. Moral requirements have been exchanged with something called free grace. Personal responsibility has been exchanged for personal entitlement. The revolution of 1776, historians tell us, would not have happened the ideals behind it would never have come to fruition had the great awakening not occurred some 40 had not started some 40 years before the revolution america's revolution may have looked a lot more like france's revolution had something not come through men like tennant and whitfield and edwards finney came later but these three and others who for the first time begin to preach repentance and the holiness of God and the accountability of sinners to a loving God. They began to preach this and an awakening took place in America. Michael Chomsky says that the argument of freedom of speech and freedom of religion would have never come forth had the great awakening not preceded it and framed it. Historian Nathan O'Hatch shows that the Great Awakening played a key role in framing the constitutional revolution that came after. I'm going to give you a couple shotgun statistics to show how the church has changed. 
And then I'm going to ask you a hard question. So this was a survey done on, on 19th century church discipline. Okay? Try to shackle your judgments and let's just endure this for a couple minutes. <clears throat> the survey showed that a Sister Watkins was disciplined by Broadmead Baptist Church for, quote, not paying her debts and not keeping her promises and not working. Thomas Bass was disciplined for telling lies and swearing. The church at Warby's withdrew from Mary Poulter for forsaking the assembly of the church and neglecting holy duties and walking disorderly in pride and vanity. In 1817, a brother Lancaster was brought before Palton Baptist Church of Georgia and disciplined for allowing, quote, the young people to dance to fiddling music at his daughter's wedding. Ellen Burgess was disciplined for lying and slandering her relations. John Blows, a preacher, absented himself from a day of fasting and prayer at Finston uh, church, uh, church to attend a great football play, he being one of the principal appointers thereof. After being confronted about the matter, he confessed that he had done wrong and promised to abstain from the like for the time to come. Nevertheless, as he had dishonored the Lord and grieved the people of God and given occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully, it was resolved that he should not be suffered to preach until further fruits meet for repentance did appear. John Christmas was disciplined for not loving Anne, his wife, as he ought, and for speaking hateful and despising words against her, giving her occasion to depart from him by his unkindness. Mary Drake was disciplined for sundry times dissembling with the church and out of covetousness speaking things very untrue and at length it being plainly proved against her in her hearing and she having little to say for herself was withdrawn from. Baptist churches in America restored about one-third of those excommunicated. But we've replaced that with freedom in Christ. America boasts the freest generation in history plagued with addiction, depression, loneliness, and suicide. Between 1999 and 2020, 840,000 lives were lost to suicide alone in the United States alone. Freedom in Christ. 63% of young adults suffer significant symptoms of anxiety and depression. 20.4 million people in the United States were diagnosed with substance abuse disorders in 2021 alone. Ernst Jünger was alive and witnessed the rise of the Nazi party and terror in Germany. And he wrote this, One often wonders where all these satanic forces are coming from. Whence come these extortionists and murderers who have suddenly erupted in the bosom of our country in a way nobody was able to foresee? And yet these forces have been powerfully entrenched among us all along, as the facts now prove. The difference is that they now have come out into the light, and because they have come and go, and because they may come and go as they please, society is in jeopardy. The fact that they have been let loose is our deed and our common fault. In breaking our own bonds, we have unleashed theirs. Here is another and perhaps the third point I want to leave you with. 
But if you don't remember anything else, please remember this. You have been taught to believe that the 19th century church was overly strict, stultifying, stifling, and yet it bequeathed to posterity the freest form of government history has ever known. And you have been indoctrinated to believe that the 21st century Christianity is the freest in Christ ever. That we have shirked all those sticky bonds of tradition and found our voice and freedom. And yet this Christianity presides over the continual breakdown of American society and eventually American free government. William Shakespeare, oftentimes to win us to our harm, the instruments of darkness tell us truths, win us with honest trifles to betray us in deepest consequence. Truths like freedom in Christ, free grace. As American churches have changed their doctrines to adapt to the surrounding world, they have broken the fetters, not restraining our destiny, but restraining our baser natures. And they have released a violence into the culture that begs for a tyrant. And a tyrant will answer. 71% of Americans say they support legal same-sex marriage. 50% of Christians say casual sex outside a committed romantic relationship, forget marriage, just a committed romantic relationship is sometimes or always acceptable. 84% of non-religious Americans say casual sex is sometimes or always acceptable. Do you believe these statistics would have marked the church that gave us the Constitution? I'll tell you right now, they would not have. You were disciplined for showing vanity and dishonesty. 70% <laughs> of Americans say having a baby outside of marriage is morally acceptable. By contrast, 28% stated it was morally wrong. Here's a, a survey on the morality of self-fulfillment. This was a study done, uh, a wide-ranging study done that in, in 2015 that shows American population, including unbelievers and believers right here, and it shows just Christians right here. So in every statistic, the Christians are just a little bit behind. The statement read, the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. 91% Americans, 76% of Christians agreed with that statement. People should not criticize someone else's life choices. 76% of Christians agreed with that statement. To be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. 72% of Christians agree with that statement. The highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. We once called that hedonism. 67% of Christians. Thankfully, it's a minority of Christians, but still 40% of Christians say any kind of sexual expression, any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. Edward Rubin of Vanderbilt Law School says, it is a mistake to think that self-fulfillment 
is a lack of morality. It is a new morality. It's just that we can't tell the difference between the old and the new forms of morality. Psychology Today, I'll just go to this lower quote here. Psychology Today says, analysis that brings all data together reveal the average narcissism score has been steadily increasing and the average empathy score has been steadily decreasing ever since the questionnaires were developed. The changes are highly significant statistically and sufficiently large that approximately 70% of students today score higher on narcissism and lower on empathy than did the average students 30 years ago. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This was not a change in church doctrine. This was not a change in the Bible. Who changed? The church changed because she has no identity except within and as part of the world. We believe that repentance is the antecedent to true liberty. True liberty can only come when we have dealt with the problem. All societies pivot on the question of where sin originates. Either they tell you man is intrinsically good, but he's environmentally contaminated, or Christianity tells you man is born in sin and shaped in iniquity, and his environment either supports or hinders his righteousness or evil. But it's not environmentally determined. Marxism tells you that man is good, but his environment is the problem. Change the environment and change the man. Only those who can commit to cultures that foster internal restraint can still be responsible and trusted with the most precious liberties of life. We must inspire coming generations to honor freedom and live it out with moral honor, lest today's liberties be lost to tomorrow's creeping tyranny. The revolution has already happened and we're in the aftermath. And the revolution happened in the church who's called to bind and loose. And they have loosed the wrong thing. We have erroneously confused moral decay with political solutions. Guns are not the problem. Hatred, sectarianism, narcissism, and violence are the problem remedied with Christ and repentance, not another political amendment. We seek to be a community of constraint to thus allow liberty to assume life's responsibilities, true freedom. Freedom can be spoken of in negative terms, freedom from. That's a meaningful definition of freedom, but there's also freedom for. We would argue that the greatest freedoms are assuming responsibility for life. And we have found that if a community can resolve the moral bankruptcy and instead foster a culture of trust that suddenly they can start to take responsibility for the most precious gifts of liberty, giving birth to our own children at home and trusting our neighbors for that support, bringing health care into the context of the community, its doctors, its midwives, its paramedics, its nurses, bringing food under the purview and trust 
of community members, bringing home building and character building and discipleship and education and higher education all into a context where we have sought to resolve the real problem. Jesus declared repentance as a prerequisite for the kingdom of God that he said was at hand. And there is a life in God, there is a rule of the king that can be inherited if we resolve the tyranny of self through repentance and let him be the only Lord and sovereign. A renaissance of constitutional liberty can only follow a revival of spirituality, responsibility, and family in society.